0: Well, welcome back again this morning. Good to see you all. I will open in prayer, and we will be off again on Deuteronomy 10. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are here only because of a work that you have done. You are the one who has created us. You have redeemed us, and you have forgiven us our sins. All that we have, we owe to you. And we pray this morning that you would not abandon the work of your hands, but that you would increase our understanding, that we might walk before you in holiness of life, blameless to those around us and pleasing to you. And so as we gather again for this hour, we ask once more that you would deepen our understanding to that end, that you would allow us to see wonderful things in your law, and that it would become our delight. We thank you for this gospel that Moses has articulated and that you have preserved through centuries. And we pray that you would make it good to us this morning. We ask it in his name. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We are going to start in verse 10 and God willing make it to the end of the chapter. Moses has been reminding Israel of her hard-heartedness. And he uses the idolatry of Sinai to prove it, as it were, to the people. Moses' pastoral objective is to inculcate a spirit of humility in Israel as he explains that their sin rightfully deserved God's wrath, but... Moses' intercession for them was successful and turned the Lord back from exterminating the people. We saw that up in chapter 9, verse 25. Moses says, So I lay prostrate before the Lord these 40 days and 40 nights because the Lord said to me he would destroy or exterminate you. So the only reason this people continue on to exist and not be utterly destroyed as a people is because God had forgiven their sin as a response to Moses' prayer. That leads us to Deuteronomy 10.10 this morning, where he gives a summary of what he has been uh, speaking about here the last uh, close to chapter or so. And the 40 days that he mentions here in chapter 10, verse 10, are the same 40 days that he mentioned in chapter 9, verse 25 that we had just read. So this here is kind of Moses' summary statement of all that we've been looking at here for about the last four weeks. He says, I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. And what is remarkable about this verse here is Moses adds to it the most pointed description of the Lord's intentions All the way from the time Israel sinned at Sinai, through those 40 days and 40 nights, Moses says, the Lord was unwilling to destroy you. Now I mentioned this last week in chapter 9, verse 26. I would encourage you to turn there real quick. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 26. Moses says, I prayed to the Lord, and this is his prayer, O Lord God, do not destroy your people, and your heritage. So both in chapter 9, 26, and in chapter 10, verse 10, Moses talks about the people being destroyed. But if we go back one more step to chapter 9, verse 12. Moses recounts what the Lord said to him while he was up on the mountain the first time. The Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They don't seem connected. But what the people have done in chapter 9, verse 12 is to act corruptly. That is the same word that is translated destroy in the other two verses that we looked at. Chapter 9, verse 26, and chapter 10, verse 10. The Lord was unwilling to spoil you you might say. So the people go down quickly. The people have spoiled themselves. The Lord threatens uh, that He will destroy them. So Moses says, Do not spoil your people. Why ruin the work of your hands? And here in chapter 10, verse 10, the Lord was unwilling to spoil you. Destroys a fair translation. That is what it amounts to. But Moses is making a play on words here. And the reason he's doing it is he's saying, The Lord was unwilling to give to you what you deserved. You spoiled yourself, you acted corruptly, but the Lord was unwilling to corrupt or destroy you as a result of what you did. So it's simply uh, a way for Moses to very pointedly say, the Lord was not willing to give to you what you deserved. God does not take pleasure in giving us what we deserve. The only thing more distasteful to the Lord Than giving us a perfectly just reward is that his name be spoiled. That is what Moses bases his prayer on up in chapter 9, you will recall. So let's go back one more time. Chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin. And here's the key line. Lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So basically Moses pleads this. Yes, they deserve to be destroyed. That is the just reward. But please do not give them their just reward because in doing so you risk your own reputation. There is a world of difference between saying to the Lord, Please do not punish me because I do not want to be punished, and Please do not give me what I deserve for your name's sake. There is a world of difference between those two things. And Psalm 25, verse 11, gives us a great context for us to place our own prayers for forgiveness in. So, Psalm 25, verse 11. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. How many of you have ever at one time memorized Psalm 23? Right? That's that's a very, very common psalm. What we often overlook, though, is he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's for the sake of the Lord's name that we plead for forgiveness. So, O Lord, you've begun to do a work in me. Please do not abandon the work of your hands. Do not give me what I deserve. Even though you have redeemed me and I have gone astray, it is in your own interest to forgive my sin. Now that is absolutely an amazing encouragement for anyone who is wondering, I've wandered from God, will he forgive me if I come back? The biblical answer is a resounding, absolutely. Plead his own name. Show him his own writing, which is, for your name's sake, forgive my sin. Pardon it, for it is great. But that is also a warning for anyone who might not be so concerned about it. There is a just reward, and the Lord knows that. And that is the default setting, you might say, out of which the Lord operates. We've seen hints that the Lord doesn't want to go that direction throughout chapter 9 and chapter 10. Moses has to actually pray for that to, to not happen. But Moses does pray and the Lord does relent. So verse back to Ch- Deuteronomy chapter 10 here, verse 11. Moses, verse 10, said he was on the mountain. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. But so, so great is the Lord's desire to forgive, verse 11 that he puts everything back in place and is eager to get on with his mission for the people of Israel. And the Lord said to me, arise, go on your journey at the head of this people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to give them. This kind of wraps up the section that started all the way back at the beginning of chapter 9. And Moses comes full circle here. The reason he ends with, go on ahead of this people, take possession of the land. That circles us back to chapter 9, verse 4. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust him out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Now he's gone on a chapter and a half detailing why that is not the case. And so it began with the issue of my righteousness as I possess the land. And it ends with, no, your wickedness and the Lord's mercy as you inherit the land. So uh, by ending as he does on chapter 11... He's simply uh, putting uh, good wrapping, as it were, on this sermon that he has given to the people of Israel. Now, that historical perspective leaves no doubt as to why Israel is not receiving the land, again, her righteousness. And it shows why they are, which is God's grace. Now, as Israel's pastor, Moses thinks that one of the greatest travesties that would befall Israel as they enter the land is spiritual pride. When you enter the land, remember this. You are a stiff-necked, stubborn, wicked, sinful people. He uses all of those descriptions about the people throughout this time. They are unrighteous and they are unworthy. But what is remarkable is the spiritual blessings that flow when Israel or when we take that lesson to heart Again, back in the Psalms, in fact, maybe you want to just turn to James chapter 4. We'll spend a little bit of time there. I will swing by the Psalms and read you Psalm 149, verse 4, where the psalmist picks up on the same theme. And then we'll look at James chapter 4, starting in verse 6. So this is Psalm 149, verse 4. For the Lord takes pleasure in His people, He adorns the humble with salvation. That is the theme that James himself will pick up in chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 6, and I'm confident about the reference this week. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then again down in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. One of the greatest qualities the Lord seeks for in His people is humility. Humility isn't the same thing as... um, Bashfulness isn't the word I'm looking for. Um, Self-doubt. Self-doubt and humility are not the same thing. Neither is modesty and humility the same thing. They're they're different. They can often look the same, but they're actually different. Humility is a recognition of what our own internal character is made up of. Modesty uh, might be resisting taking credit for something that you could rightfully take credit for. Humility is not that. Humility is recognizing you're not as great as you think you are. Compare yourself to the Lord, not to other people compare yourself to the Lord. That's who our standard is, not other people. And so Moses aims to uh, grow Israel in humility before they enter the land because if they do not have that, they are going to lose it. People who are not humble are inevitably idolatrous people. And we'll run into that in a little bit. But uh, right now we'll pause. Any thoughts or questions before we move on? then we will take one more step forward here. Moses has kind of ended his historical reflection and he moves on now not um, <laughs> I don't want to say with the application but kind of with the application, right? Humility is an application. Um, when I was in uh, seminary I had a preaching class and the professor semi-helpfully said always do two things in composing a sermon. One, one, is tell people what you want the people to think, Make write out one statement, what should they think, and one more uh, statement, what should they do. His idea was to transform the mind and the actions. I never said it because it wasn't my place quite, but sometimes thinking differently is the application. Um, Moses here tries to transform their thinking, lots of application all through this time, but now he comes to a more pointed thing and he kind of, uh, circles back to where he began in chapter 6, which is explaining the first commandment. The reason that's important is because the rest of Deuteronomy has been laying out what do the Ten Commandments mean? How how are they explained? Which came in Deuteronomy 5. Those are the Ten Commandments. Moses began in Deuteronomy 6 right away. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the application of Or the outworking, you might say, of the first one or two commandments, depending on how you number them. Moses now comes back to that here in verses 2 and 3. And the reason that's important is because the Ten Commandments stand as creator to creation commandments, especially in Exodus. All those Ten Commandments are creation ordinances, What God has done in redemptive history adds to our reason why we ought to obey them. It doesn't replace it. It adds to them. And so what does it mean to not have any other gods before the Lord and to not make idols? Well, it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But the Lord has redeemed you and forgiven your sin. Therefore, what is your proper response to him? Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding for your good. The Lord has created you He's redeemed you from bondage. He's forgiven your sin. How to respond. The NIV, I think, has the best translation here in verse 12. Uh, I'll read the ESV one more time and then contrast it. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? It's a lot softer in Hebrew, and the NIV reflects it best. The NIV has, what does the Lord ask of you? That is, I think, a better translation. And the reason I draw that to your attention is that because given redemption, the Lord doesn't merely try to contort our wills by the force of commands. He does that, but he does more than that. As the one who redeems us, he reasons with us. What is your reasonable response to this? And Isaiah picks up on that, Isaiah chapter 1, it's how the book opens, and it is a marvelous opening to a book, one of my favorites. Isaiah chapter 1, we'll read a few verses out of it, and we'll start in uh, verse 2. So Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2, and you'll see the prominence of the theme of redemption, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is what he has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They, have utterly, they are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. Jump down, though, to verse 18. In light of all of that, Isaiah still comes to Israel and says, Come, to verse 18 now, come now, Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be white like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is a reasonable response that we have to the Lord's salvation. And the Lord tries to reason with us, right? I've done this great thing for you. It is only right and wise and reasonable for you to continue on in blessing rather than to receive curse for disobedience. James, uh, though in a very different context, says something very similar. I'll read it to you, James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So God gives us reason to respond to him rightly. And what is it that the Lord reasons with us? What is our reasonable response? Well, it is merely to fear the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. To walk in his ways, which is actually an explanation of what it means to fear the Lord your God. So he requires first to fear the Lord which is to walk in all his ways to love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul which is to keep the commandments of the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you so first is to fear explained as to walk in his ways In this way, uh, our obedience is a clear gauge of the genuineness and depth of our fear. We are to love the Lord and we are to serve him with all our heart and with all our soul. Heart and soul are often attached to our emotions, right? So love the Lord with all your heart and soul, but here it's serve the Lord with all your heart and soul. Attaching them to service instead of emotion... Uh, gives a sort of tangible perspective to it. Because we can claim to love something with all our heart and soul and justify our actions though they are not always loving. But that doesn't work quite the same with serve. We can't claim to serve with all our heart and soul without actually producing the evidence of our service. Um, There's a Uh, A tangibleness to that that we really cannot escape. We can't claim to serve someone without actually serving them. And it doesn't leave as much room for deception as our emotions might allow us to make. Colossians 3 verses 22 to 24 is worth ruminating on. I'm going to start in verse 22 because it gives us some context. And we might say, well, that's uh, pretty limited. It's speaking to bondservants or servants of earthly masters. Well, that's true, but verse 23 broadens that out. So, Colossians 3, verse 22 Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. But here it broadens out. Whatever you do, now whether that's speaking only to servants, it doesn't matter. Because though it is certainly speaking to servants, it is also much broader than that. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, serving Christ is done through any of our work, and it ought to be done through all of our work. But understanding ourselves as being servants of the Lord and working for him is a lot different than taking pride in your work. We, we say take pride in your work as a way to encourage people to do a good job, um, to take ownership, you might say. But I think as Christians, it would be better to encourage ourselves and those around us and our children. You no, know, work like you're working for Jesus in this. As, as you do your math assignments, Jesus is the one who is ultimately giving you the grade, not the teacher. Right? Uh, and we know that too. I mean, multiply that out, over a thousand different fields of work. Whatever we do, do as unto the Lord. That assumes an inner disposition. But that inner disposition is worked out through all of the things that we do day to day. It manifests itself in outwardness. So as Christians, we, we have a twofold thing here. And so we'll go back to Deuteronomy here because it, it shows it very clearly. What does the Lord ask of you but merely to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, To serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. That takes place through our occupations, whatever they may be. But there is something in addition to that. As servants of Christ's kingdom, Christians are to serve his kingdom first. Right? Christians, therefore, can be quiet but not silent. If our setting requires silence of us, it's worth asking, are we serving the Lord our God with all our heart and soul? If our setting requires us to serve quietly, well, that's still different a little bit than silently. So we could ask ourselves, where is our heart? Is our heart for Christ's kingdom? Or is our heart for whatever we're gaining from our job? And that is a mere service. Um, Some translations may even have it. I didn't even look. And now, Israel, what does the Lord ask of you but merely? It's only to do this. It's not asking much. That not asking much might require a job. It will certainly require social standing. um, But the Lord doesn't require us to traverse the globe as missionaries. Now, the Lord doesn't necessarily require us to build hospitals or all of us to preach or all of us to go off and do some grand project. No, he's he's not asking that. What is the Lord asking then? Obedience in the realm where God has placed you. That's it. And that covers a thousand different things in a thousand different places in a thousand different ways. And Moses summarizes it at the end of verse 11. Verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 13, to keep the commandments. This is what it means to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul. To keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. In a sense, obeying the Lord is, is very self-seeking. Um, the commandments are not burdensome any more than seeking our own good. Uh, but what that good looks like, we have to have framed around what scripture presents for us so seeking the lord's good is not or seeking to obey the lord for our good doesn't come at our expense it comes at sin's expense and if we can have that frame of mind obedience is is not so burdensome all of a sudden thoughts or questions over those two verses Okay. Marilyn. I uh, find the question mark at the end of 13 interesting. It's a long question, but the expected answer. What would the right answer be? He supplies the right answer. So Marilyn points out uh, 13 does end with a question mark. And the reason it does so, um, just so we're all clear, is verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord require of you? It is, it is a question, but he answers the question. Uh, as as he goes along, which is, except to fear the Lord your God. And so the, the rhetorical part of it is, there is nothing else the Lord requires. This is it. Um, but but he has the, this is it, within verses 12 and 13. Good, good question. I wondered what the difference is when, in scripture, when they talk about commandments, statutes, and there's usually a couple other words that are used in, they list them, so there has to be a difference. Yeah. Good question. It's about statutes and commandments and what is the difference. Um, Commandments, let's put it this way. There is 80 to 90% overlap between all of the terms, right? So so they are often used interchangeably. Broadly speaking, though, if you want to understand the distinction, the the distinction would roughly be this. Commandments are everything. They're the catch-all phrase, but not always used as catch-all phrase, but usually. So everything Moses is commanding Uh, Is different than everything I'm statutating, right? Um, So partly it's just the verb that's being used there. Statutes are usually the written commandment, positive or negative, such as, you shall not steal. Very simple. That's the statute. A judgment is another word that is often used, which would sound more like a case ruling as to the application of what it looks like to not steal. So you shall not steal. Which is, judgment, if a neighbor's ox wanders away from his house, you shall keep it, you shall feed it, you shall care for it, and you shall return it as soon as your neighbor comes walking by. That is the action case in which do not steal is applied. So um, a statute is the written inscribed law, you might say. Judgment is the application. And there are several others that go along with it, and we can run into those when they come. Anything else? Okay. Verses 14 to 19. Verses 14 and 15 are presenting an argument, and they lead up to a conclusion in verse 16. And the argument is this Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven, and the heaven of heavens the earth with all that is in it the lord belong everything belongs to the lord yet the lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them you above all peoples as you are this day so verse 14 everything belongs to the lord verse 15 this outrageous claim that out of everything the Lord has created and all of the people he's made, there is one group of people the Lord desired to set his love on. That is, your fathers and you. Those are the same themes that Moses presented back in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. I'll read them uh, just so we are re-familiar with them. Because again, Moses is circling back around and hitting these themes again. Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 and 8. It was not because you were more in number than other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So those themes of being chosen or desired and being loved, those all come back up here in a surprising way. If that is true, if it is true that everything belongs to the Lord, but there is only one people that the Lord desired to love, what is the response of that people? Verse 16. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. So there's two commandments here. Uh, The first one is a positive Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant that was uh, engraved on every male's flesh, it's the removal of the outer skin to expose the soft flesh underneath it. And Moses makes that figurative says, remove from your heart that outer protective layer to expose the soft tissue of your heart to the Lord. We are to expose our hearts to God and we are to bear the covenant of the Lord in our heart. That's the second thing that circumcision was. It was a sign of the covenant and that is to be in our hearts. Which means we are to have an inner reality that is supposed to correspond to our outer reality. Paul makes much of this in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. One of the peculiarities of circumcision is that every time a man looked at himself, he was supposed to be reminded of the covenant between him and his God. Moses drives that home here in Deuteronomy chapter 10 to say, When you look at yourself, don't see what is merely there outwardly. Make sure that the inner reality corresponds to that outer reality. And what is remarkable is Moses commands the people to do this to their own heart. Circumcise your heart. We are responsible for serious and lengthy self-reflection, which should lead us to humility. We are also responsible for serious and lengthy reflection of what God has done for us, which, again, would lead us to humility and praise. It would lead us to a desire to be obedient as well. Which leads to the negative command in verse 16. Positive command, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and, negatively, be no longer stubborn. This is a negative command, and it is a different image, but it's one that Moses has already used twice in chapter 9, uh, which is, don't be stiff-necked. It's the same word again. Uh, Israel has been stiff-necked, they've been stubborn. Moses tells The Lord tells Moses that as he sends him down. Moses accuses the people of being stiff-necked. And here again, he's saying, don't be that way. It's the same word again for the third time. God's electing grace should lure them to love and a desire to obediently serve. Because they've seen, this is for our good. The Lord has done good things for us. And they ought to continue walking in it. I'll pause right there for any comments or questions. Alright, then verses 17 and 18. One, one thing I'll point out before we step forward here. When Moses asked the question in verse 12, what does the Lord require of you? And he explains a little bit what that looks like here in verses 14, 15, and especially 16. Moses says nothing about external forms of worship. Uh, All of these things are inner dispositions. And he focuses on um, self-reflective humility. Uh, Similar to Psalm 51, actually. Uh, Psalm 51 is a great confession of who we are. And if we were to read a few verses of that, um, we would see how the psalmist reflects what Moses is uh, trying to get Israel to do. Psalm 51, starting in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. So there again, that inner reality, the inner disposition reflecting the outer circumstances there again. But verses 17 and 18, Moses adds to the reason why Israel ought to circumcise their hearts. Verses 17 and 18, For the Lord your God is god of gods and lord of lords the great the mighty and the awesome god who is not partial and takes no bribe he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing now the connection here is it doesn't matter who you are among men before god you're just a man you're you're just you So, don't be puffed up, don't be self-conceited, even though you alone are the one that the Lord desired to love and chose. God is above all of these, and he has a particularly soft spot for those who are easily overlooked in our pride and self-centeredness. So, obedience from a circumcised heart is what counts with this mighty and awesome God, And the English translates verse 17, uh, the end of it there, who is not partial and takes no bribe. Uh, Quite literally, it is uh, the Lord your God is God of God and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who does not lift up the face. And that imagery comes from courtroom language, which is where if there was a plaintiff before the judge, uh, you know, imagine him being prostrate before the judge, trying to ask him for something, and the judge lifts up his face to see who it is before he gives his judgment so that he can wait his decision based on who it is before him. Uh, the language here is the Lord doesn't do that. He doesn't lift up the face to see who he's dealing with. He deals blindly, as it were. But he does so as the Lord of Lord and God of gods, and there is no changing what he has decided, and he decides it out of perfect fairness and rightness. So, uh, one more thing to point out here, in who is not partial and takes no bribe, that goes two ways, right? In our day, the oppressed publicly get the advantage, though it is usually the powerful who are able to actually bribe. Israel was forbidden to either show partiality to the poor or take a bribe from the rich. You can't go in either direction. Um, Justice is not tipping the scales of balance in favor of the poor or in allowing the rich to manipulate the decision that comes down. Um, Neither of those are to happen. And in our context, we have largely forgotten the, the, the truth that we can't tip the scales in favor of the poor. It doesn't work that way. Uh, by doing that, justice is ultimately perverted. But verses seventeen and eighteen here, that the God, uh, the Lord Yahweh, is God of God and Lord of Lords. In verse eighteen, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. That leads into another command. So those two verses, though they add reason to circumcise your heart, that is actually worked out in verse nineteen. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So because God is who he is, and Israel is to walk in his ways and imitate him, Israel ought to love the sojourner, but there's an additional reason. So again, there is this reason based in God's lordship, but then there's also this reason based in God's redemption. God has redeemed you. You were once sojourners, therefore you ought to have a particular soft spot for sojourners as well. So knowing God's grace and generosity from their past experiences, they should be eager to pass that on to others as well. And in this way, love for a neighbor flows from a love for God. As we receive from God, we return out of trust and gratitude. We obey the Lord. Micah, uh, chapter 6. You would turn there, harps on this theme as well. Brings many of them together. Micah chapter 6. Out of trust and gratitude, we are to love others whom God is eager to provide for. He gives him food and clothing in Deuteronomy. Micah 6, verses 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body? for the sin of my soul. Again, we've seen all of those themes beautifully expressed in Deuteronomy up to this point. But verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Our ethic ought to be entirely transformed from the world's because of what God has done and because we know Him. But this also does two more things here, uh, this section here in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 10, verses 17 to 19. It shows that God, who elected the vulnerable, remember Abraham, Abram at the time, was nothing, didn't choose you back in Deuteronomy 7 because of your great numbers, you were the fewest of all peoples, you were a vulnerable people, The Lord who elected vulnerable Israel is not concerned only about Israel. Therefore, neither should they be concerned only for Israel. Watch how that happens in verse 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. The sojourner is someone who lived in the land of Israel, let's say, but was not a citizen of the land. They had many of the rights of the native, but not all of the rights. They were a minority in the midst of a fiercely tribalistic people. Even, uh, I mean, I, I grew up in a rural South Dakota, and when I was a kid, there was a lot of talk about the Germans, right? They're largely Germans out in that area. And if you go back two generations, everyone was very tribalistic, right? Norwegian settled here, German settled here, and it, you just had groups of people. The Irish over there, and they, they relatively stuck together. And so going back in our own day, not very far at all. Uh, there are uh, remnants of that tribalism, but it's amplified back in this day where outsiders, I mean, in America it was different, right? You come together, we're all here, we're all trying to hash it out, and what makes America great is everyone can come here and live the American dream. Well, in Israel, if you're an outsider, why are you here? Are you here to live the Israeli dream, or are you here to spy out the nakedness of the land? Right? Um, so, so it was amped up in their day. The sojourner would be very vulnerable, not only because he didn't possess the full rights as a citizen, but also because there's just this curiosity and concern. Are you here to take advantage of us and to undermine what we have going on? But the Lord says, I love the sojourner. He may seem to pose a threat to you. I love him. And therefore, you ought to love him too. So the God of God and Lord of Lords looks out for the little people, and his love goes beyond elect Israel. So that election of Israel should cause no pride. It should cause sympathy and empathy toward those that are not a part of their group. Now, I cannot... Uh, duplicated. I maybe should have just brought it and read some, Um, but Daniel Block goes into a terrific discussion of how the Christian ought to face issues of immigration, uh, especially in our political climate. If you'd like to read that, I'd be happy to present it for you, Uh, but just to throw the idea and put it in your mind, uh, consider this in relation to issues of immigration. The second thing it does, so that's number one, it creates sympathy and empathy and should cause Israel to care for those who they might otherwise think of as threats. The second thing it does is, it, oddly enough, it gives us a good, sound principle of biblical interpretation, and that is this. God's work on behalf of Israel is a type of what he does for all in blessing and in cursing. So these commandments don't end with this ethnic group. It's supposed to extend out beyond the ethnic group in the same way the Lord's affections extend out beyond this ethnic group. So all who live in the Lord's land are to live not only under the shelter of the Lord's love, they are also encouraged to live for their own good according to the commands that the Lord has given. So, uh, a good, sound principle in biblical interpretation here. So, uh, one practical thing we could maybe just tack on here at the end, uh, our sense, uh, in, in a sense, our love is not to end with the church, though we love the church preeminently. It's supposed to extend out beyond that to other people as well. Before we move on to verses 20 and following, any thoughts or questions? Yeah, he he certainly does use Israel as an example. Um, The Lord's use of Israel goes beyond that. Uh, There is an affection there that is inexplainable Um, but uh, yes, he does use Israel as an example for others as well. Yeah, Uh, so the question is, uh, where most pointedly, where did the term Jew come from in distinction from other titles used to refer to the same people? Yeah, so Israel is often used as a designation for all of those who descended from the people of Israel, right, as opposed to Esau, for example, right? So the Lord renames Jacob, uh, Israel, and from then on you have the Israelites stem out, The term Jews became popularized after the Babylonian exile. And so you will remember after Solomon, his next son Rehoboam, the northern and the southern kingdom of Israel split. You now have Israel, roughly, in the north, and Judah in the south. Israel is taken off the map earlier on. Judah is exiled later on. And when the Jews returning to Judah come back, that's kind of the name that sticks since Israel, as a geopolitical entity, doesn't really exist anymore. You now have a Jewish people. We'll just fast forward, um, make the connections you want. Right now, Israel, is a modern state, is a Jewish nation. We call it Israel. Um, but is it? Uh, is, is a good question to, to kind of just throw out there to, to think about for a little while. In the New Testament, I I shouldn't say anything, Uh, Jews uh, are the most common term. In Romans 2, used relatively positively. In Revelation, used very negatively as the oppressors of God's people. And in that sense, in Romans, Jews and Israel can sometimes be used interchangeably because it's being used in a positive context, sometimes dealing with the ethnic people, sometimes dealing with all God's people broadly. It can be very confusing. In Revelation, Jews are used, you might say, in contrast to Israel, God's true people, uh, those who are the offspring of promise rather than the offspring of physical descent. So how it comes out in the New Testament is challenging, and there's a lot of question that is unresolved good question So verse 18 uh, executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. Um, Literally, I would say, yes, he has in mind the actual fatherless and the actual widow. And in terms of current discussion, given the rampant pandemic of fatherlessness, I would say that these things do still stand. Um, The Lord does have a soft spot for those who lack Fathers and husbands, a couple of things go into that. In this day and age, that had connotations more pronounced than in our own. So we have the welfare state where there is some form of provision provided for these people, which in many cases is a divine grace. I mean, that's grace working through the systems established, which are quite sinful and perverted nonetheless, but still the way God works. And in their day and age, they had absolutely no one. And so it's the Lord saying, I watch out for those who have no recourse to sustenance, and I care for them. And a biblical example might be when Elisha cares for the widow whose prophet husband died, and she was in debt, and she comes to Elisha, which is coming to God uh, through Elisha, and he he cares for her. Um, In our own day and age, we, I think, ought to have a soft spot for the fatherless and the widow, and they are often the first ones that get overlooked because it can be very problematic, right? Talk to any teacher who deals with students who come from uh, divided homes or split homes, and um, it is very easy to bemoan all of the social challenges that come along with that, but all the more need for grace to penetrate. And who else is to do it besides the church? Um, good. Anything else? Do you know about, uh, it's not a quiz thing? I don't know of any time where it seems like the Israelites slash Jews at a certain point really went out or pursued accepting the other nations and trying to bring them in and pull them in. So it seems like this is yeah. longer Yeah, so there's two things that go on there. First, um, Jews and Israelites, what Israelites, we'll just say for now at this time, they they weren't commanded to go out, but they were commanded when they come into your borders. When I bring a sojourner in, you show him what it's like to live in God's place. And uh, we're to do the same thing, right? That's, that's what the church is. Jesus says, the world will know that you love me by your love for one another. Within the church, and the new commandment is love one another. And I take that primarily to be a reference to the church. And so, in that sense, we mirror what goes on in Old Testament Israel. What has happened, though, differently is in the new covenant, we are explicitly commanded to take that outward as well. Where in Deuteronomy, as you live by the Lord's laws, all the nations around you are going to see, and they will say, What wisdom and understanding this people have! This is amazing. And so they would come and see what was going on. We are commanded, take that wisdom out. Though it will, as we heard this morning, usually be rejected. Now, even as it was in Israel's day, most nations did not look at them and say, Wow! Uh, saw them as someone to be conquered. Um, and so it is in our day. Uh, but we, we have an explicit command to go out and where they didn't. And we tend to be a lot more Israelite, or I do anyway. Um, and no, you come see what we got, uh, rather than taking it out. Good, good point, Dan. All right, we are at time. I'll let you go. God willing, I'll see you next week.